That was beautiful. Pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Amen. I am Sharon Holland. I, uh, I have preached here a few times before. Drew asked me to fill in today while uh, he's with his family at uh, his mother-in-law's memorial service. It is a delight for me to be here and give you the message that you are not here by accident. You are here in this worship service today because of the ancient plan of God and the fulfillment of prophecy. Thousands of years ago, God chose a man named Abram, who became Abraham. And he asked him to leave his home, leave the land of his fathers, and travel to a new land that he would show him. And there, God promised I will make of you a great nation. Through you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham did it. And because he believed God, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Over and over again, God confirms this covenant he makes with Abraham. He says, consider the stars. How many stars there are in the sky, that is how many your offspring will be. My friends, in the words of an old Rich Mullins song, think of Abraham and how one star he saw had been lit for you. God's covenant through Abraham is confirmed through his son and through his grandson. His covenant with Abraham is confirmed again with Moses on Mount Sinai, where God also gives the law. God has chosen one people on the earth for himself to be a nation priesthood for the world, through whom the world will be blessed. That prophecy is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus Christ came to save us from our sin. He lived on earth. He preached and had a ministry healing people, performing miracles, telling us who God was. And when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he's preaching to thousands of people. He's performing miracles People are hearing about him. And then every now and then in the Gospels, we get this strange thing happening where Jesus says something like, Go, your faith has healed you. Don't tell anybody. Who do you think I am? I, well, you are the Christ. Okay, don't tell anybody. Why on earth would Jesus say, don't tell anybody? Well, I, Jesus was controlling, trying to somewhat control the flow of information. Because he was coming first to the Jews in fulfillment of God's ancient promise, in fulfillment of the covenant, and then to the Gentiles. Jesus kind of tries to keep some things on the down low 
and the Gentiles still hear about it, and Gentiles start coming to Jesus for miracles, for healing. And he doesn't turn them away. But when word gets out to the Gentiles, there's a moment where a centurion comes to Jesus for healing. Jesus performs a miracle, and then we're told at from then on, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, meaning Jesus knew it was time. It was time to head toward his own crucifixion. For our sermon series, we have been reading through the book of Acts, and the book of Acts tells us what happens next. Jesus is crucified and he comes back to life again. God raises him from the dead. And then the book of Acts begins with Jesus' ascension into heaven where he tells his disciples, I need to go because if I go, I can send the Holy Spirit. And that's even better for you. The Holy Spirit will live inside you. And so the book of Acts shows the Spirit moving And that covenant God made with Abraham that was a covenant with one people begins to burst its banks. The river of the Holy Spirit is overflowing the course set for it. First, there is the Pentecost. And all of the believers are gathered together. And the Holy Spirit comes in. And it's I I, I sometimes read the, the passage and I think it it has those little captions from the old comic books or the Batman uh, TV show. Whoosh, it tells us. The Holy Spirit comes in with a sound of a mighty wind and little tongues of flame appear over everyone's head and they start speaking in multiple languages. And it it was a holy day. So there were people from all over the Jewish diaspora, all over the world, coming to Jerusalem for the holiday, and they all heard the gospel in their own language and could go back and take it to the country they lived in. And then the Spirit moves even further out, and we see uh, the church expanding from just the Aramaic-speaking Jews to the Hellenized Jews, and we see the Spirit reaching out even more and the first Gentile convert happens and it's an Ethiopian and the gospel goes to Ethiopia. And then we get to Paul, as Pastor Drew preached to us last week, who is a Pharisee. He is of the party that killed Jesus. He is persecuting Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, as it is taking the gospel further out and further out, doesn't even leave out his persecutors. Paul becomes a Christian when Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. Then we get to our passage here, Acts chapter 10. Now, the Holy Spirit can overturn a heart of stone. Jesus can meet Paul, then Saul, uh, when he was on the road to Damascus. He can meet him and confront him and call him to repentance and save him. A man who wanted to kill the followers of Jesus. Well, there was another group involved in the death of Jesus. 
She's the hand that held the hammer was a Roman soldier. And in Acts chapter 10, we see the spirit burst even further. And now we're going to have our second Gentile convert to Christianity. Let's read in Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed... He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius is a centurion. He is an officer in the Roman army, and he is a God-fearer. Now, a God-fearer in the ancient world was a Gentile who worshipped the God of Israel. God-fearers were people who were drawn to the knowledge of God which Israel had, just as Abraham had been promised. Here is members of another nation, members of other nations, coming to Israel for knowledge about God. God God-fearers would attend worship in synagogues. They prayed. We have ancient... um, inscriptions that tell us that God-fearers were giving money to the synagogue. Some of the synagogues were built with the donations made by these Gentile believers in the God of Israel. But God-fearers did not fully convert to Judaism. They didn't fully convert because of the burden of the laws that is that Jews followed. All of the, the, the most, uh, you know, scandalous in the Roman Empire would have been circumcision. That was not, um, approved of by, uh, Roman society in general. Um, so there would have been some, uh, uh, it would have hurt your career as a soldier. Uh, it also would have hurt you. That's just the way that practice works. But that was the, big barrier to uh, conversion. But even after that, there's all the little barriers of uh, the food you eat and um, uh, all of the idolatry you have to uh, carefully avoid when it's pervasive in Roman society. So the God-fearers were these group of people who wanted to serve the Lord. They wanted to know God and they knew that somehow the place to know God was through this covenant God made with Israel. But they weren't full converts to Judaism. And 
we're told that Cornelius, even among the God-fearers, is an exceptional person. People only say good things about him. He's generous, he is devout, he prays regularly, and the angel of God comes to Cornelius and gives him a message. And the message is, go find this guy, Peter. So, okay, yet another way in which God is sending the Gentiles to the people of Israel to learn about God. Now, Peter has a vision of his own. Let's continue reading in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop on the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now Peter, as a devout Jew, is following the Jewish dietary laws, which were given in the Torah, which were given on Mount Sinai, and the later expansions to them. Now, uh, the, the Pharisees, the rabbis of, of uh, Peter's day, had a practice for how they honored God. And that was they'd take a, a rule that God gave, and they'd say, okay, we don't want to even accidentally break this rule. So we're going to put more rules around that rule, and we'll keep those rules. And that way we can't even accidentally break the original rule. It was called a hedge around the law. And then those rules would become so codified in tradition that they'd say, okay, well, we don't even want to accidentally break the rules that we set up so we wouldn't accidentally break the original rule that we got from God. So we're going to put on a whole new system of rules so that, and, and the conversation about exactly what is the rule and how do you keep it could go on and on. They did go on and on for centuries. Uh, pages and pages written of argument over exactly what rule, when, to whom, how. Um, I think one of my favorites is <laughs> um, in the Sabbath practice, resting on the Sabbath. There's all sorts of rules about how to rest on the Sabbath. And if something happens where you can't quite rest on the Sabbath, um, then at least do things in an unusual way in honor of the Sabbath. And uh, uh, a teacher... Um, showed how in his uh, orthodox upbringing, if for some uh, unusual reason you had to open the refrigerator on the Sabbath, which would be against uh, the rules of rest, he had a complicated way of doing it with his foot. Now, those seem strange to us as Christians. 
maybe they shouldn't seem so strange to us. I thought, going into uh, graduate school, I had all sorts of notions of legalism. That we, that's what we call it, legalism, when the rule becomes more important to you than the rule giver. And I thought, oh, well, having read the New Testament and having sat through a lot of sermons, I thought, well, Jews must be really legalistic. Well, every time you start thinking that sin, that a particular sin is a problem of those people over there, you start to blind yourself to how that sin is in here. And when I went to graduate school and actually began to read uh, rabbinic uh, writings, it turns out, yeah, yeah, there's legalists there, but they're not all legalists. And one of the things that gets left out of Christian discussions is how much of it is done in fun. There's a kind of play with these rules, like, like they're... Um, playing a game with God cheerfully and mirthfully and, and with confidence in his love. Um, but sometimes they are really legalistic. And I found as I'm reading rabbinic literature, oh, well, this looks familiar. Because when it does get legalistic, it sounds so much like the Baptist faith I was raised in. <laughs> I don't want to put this off on Baptists. I don't want to say, well, Baptists, those people must be really legalistic. Um, but like I've sat in uh, in seminary among my Baptist friends, sitting and having a conversation in their teetotaling tradition that says you, you should never drink alcohol. Is it okay to go into a bar with someone else to share the gospel with them? If you go into the bar with them, are you allowed to buy their beer? And this was an hour conversation. It went on and on. Now, lest you think that I'm leaving Presbyterians out of our legalism uh, problem, I will su- suggest to you that when I first started hanging out with Presbyterians, I thought that Presbyterians had three sacred texts, the Bible, the Book of Confessions, and Robert's Rules of Order. <laughs> Anytime we have rules, we can use that rule to make more rules. The first thing a rule does is make more rules. And when we have rules, the temptation is to make the rules more important than the rule giver or the reason for the rule in the first place. I asked my children uh, as I was preparing for this sermon, what is the most ridiculous rule you have experienced in school? And my favorite uh, that they told me was uh, my daughter said her, her high school has a hallway that's like a big square that goes all the way through the school. And and at one point, they decided it was too disorderly, and now everyone has to walk only one direction down the hallway. So if you get out of class, and you're here, and your next class is to the right, you still have to walk to the left all the way through the entire hallway to get back. Now, that seems like a rule, that has defeated itself. So Peter has, uh, in obedience to God, always kept the dietary laws. He's kept the rules. And now God is telling him, kill and eat these unclean animals. Why? Well... 
every now and then scholars will try and come up with some uh, rationale for why certain animals were unclean in the uh, dietary laws. There probably isn't a rationale. All the attempts I've seen to come up with some symbolic meaning for why, you know, a pig or a crab is unclean, they don't really work. The dietary laws have to be somewhat arbitrary because the only thing that scripture tells us as a purpose for why you have them is to be holy as God is holy. And the word holy has the idea in it of separateness. The Jews were given dietary laws as a way to be culturally separate from the rest of the world. And that cultural separateness was part of keeping their witness to the one true God faithful. In Jesus, that purpose has been fulfilled. And the dietary laws no longer need to bind the way they used to. Peter is receiving this vision to tell him, kill and eat, not only about the dietary laws, but to say something else about the separateness that he has always observed. That it's time for the separateness to change as well. The Holy Spirit is moving. The Holy Spirit is moving through Peter to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to a Roman soldier. So what happens next? Verse 17. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, The men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out and asked whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourself know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent me. It is a testament to the goodness of Cornelius that he receives a vision from the angel 
And even though the angel doesn't say, go gather everybody you know who'll listen, that's exactly what Cornelius does. Peter doesn't show up to a house with just Cornelius in it. He shows up to a house that has Cornelius, Cornelius' entire household, all of whom are believers, they're also God-fearers, and all of his uh, fellow soldiers and family who are also interested. It's a crowd. Now, this is an instance of cross-cultural ministry. Peter is Jewish. Not only that, Peter is uh, an uneducated fisherman. Now, throughout the uh, book of Acts, we have seen Peter preach several times, and they are magnificent sermons. They are full of of quotations of of, uh, the prophets that he has memorized. They are eloquent. They are persuasive. They are daring. Some of them are, are scorching. And his preaching has been so notable that when he preaches in front of the Sanhedrin, they're shocked that an uneducated fisherman could be so eloquent, could speak so boldly. Now, we live in the era of uh, screens and television and podcasts and and, uh, visual images, TikTok, right? We... We talk about people as though they've accomplished something if they do something visually interesting. But in this world, public speaking was the interesting thing. So both in Roman society, where they cherished the uh, teaching of rhetoric and they prized eloquent speakers, and in Judaism, where being able to make a persuasive argument was a significant part of how you taught people the word of the Lord. Peter being able to speak eloquently is part of his witness. Now, this sermon he's about to give Cornelius is not eloquent. And I'm going to suggest to you that it's because Peter felt awkward. Peter has grown up with stereotypes of what Gentiles are like. Oh, those idolaters. Um, When we look at some of the rabbinic teachings on the God-fearers, on converts and potential converts, some of them are warm and welcoming, and some of them are not. One, One rabbi said, you shouldn't trust a convert until the 24th generation. So Peter has grown up with some of this, and it doesn't help that in his very first meeting with Cornelius, there's a little cultural miscommunication. The first thing Cornelius does, because Cornelius is a Roman officer, he is used to living in a world of hierarchies and empire, and the first thing he does is throw himself on the ground and worship Peter. He is humbling himself utterly, and he is glorifying Peter. Well, to Peter, that looks like, oh my goodness, these Gentiles just can't wait to find a new idol. What does he say? It's Kurt. Stand up. I, too, am a man. God told me to, and I have learned that I should not call anything unclean that God has made clean. And from there, Peter goes into his sermon. Now, I would like to read you this sermon, which Peter gives, beginning in verse uh, 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, 
Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now that is, every word of that is true. He's got it down. He is saying true things. He has presented the gospel. He has interrupted himself several times. He has not quoted the magnificent prophecies that he does in all his other sermons. Um, why? I, I suggest to you it's because in that awkward moment, his, his brain just left. Like his, all of his skill, his oratory skill, he, he didn't know how to employ it at the moment. But, does it matter? Does Peter's awkwardness in this moment, his, uh, temporary interruption of his rhetorical skill, his, Somewhat clumsiness. Does it stop what the Holy Spirit is doing? Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit does not care if you are awkward. The Holy Spirit is not stopped by you feeling uncomfortable. We are here as part of a church whose mission is to grow a diverse community of Christ followers. And sometimes that diversity is a challenge, especially to those of us, I say pointing to myself, who are uh, socially awkward. You know, uh, difference in ethnicity, difference in language is just one more place for me to stumble for me to not get a social cue, for me to not understand a convention. Uh, when you throw... Uh, I remember my when I first joined this church in the new members class, um, at the time our associate pastor was uh, Pastor Dennis. And Pastor Dennis was leading the class, and we were having a discussion about something. I don't remember even exactly what. But I remember that I said something like, um, you know, I feel some sympathy for older members of a congregation who have seen so much change in society and, and would like church to stay the same. I, I can understand wanting things, uh, wanting some place to feel familiar. That's what I said. 
Now, what I was thinking was about how uh, technology changes and how it can be confusing to try and learn uh, new technology as part of church or musical styles change and, and maybe you long for the music of your youth. That's what I was thinking. Pastor Dennis, who is black, had been through some really rough uh, transitions in churches where white people didn't want black people in their church. And what he heard when I said that was me expressing sympathy for folks looking back nostalgically on racism. And so he got upset and, and started talking about this, and I felt this hot red flush going up my face, and I realized I've said something dumb. I didn't mean to, but I said something dumb, uh, something easily, easily misunderstood. And I'm, I, I'm a proud person. I don't like apologizing, but that's clearly what I needed to do. And so I said, I'm sorry, that's, that isn't what I was trying to say. And I clarified it. And he was fine. Here's why I bring this up. We talked about a lot of things in that meeting, uh, in that new members class. Core beliefs about what our church is. The moment where I most knew the Holy Spirit was there, was in that exchange between me and Pastor Dennis. Because grace was given and grace was received. And that's where the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit isn't in the rules. The Holy Spirit is in the heart. If we focus on the rules, it's like like God gave us a Rubik's Cube. And we're trying to get the rules right. We're trying to solve it. We're trying to get each rule into place in our behavior. We're going to keep all the rules. And the more we're focused on the Rubik's Cube that God gave us, the more we're, oh, that's, I gotta, oh, just a minute, God. I gotta, I, I'm, I've almost got it. We should be looking at God and through Him looking at each other. Among my awkwardnesses is I have difficulty recognizing people's faces. That's uh, just a fact. It's called prosopognosia. I can recognize you, but it will take me much longer than ordinary people. It was deeply reassuring to me when I came to this church, and I think the first few weeks I was here, two different women came up to me and started a conversation in the middle because they couldn't tell me apart from some other middle-aged white woman that they'd had a conversation with. Like, oh, good, it's not just me. But I remember talking to uh, Catherine Saunders in um, a Bible study and, and talking about this, and she said, Sharon, do not let your difficulty recognizing faces keep you from doing the work God wants you to do. Because she understood what our passage teaches. Your awkwardness, your fumbles, your limits do not hold back the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has had a plan for millennia. You are here because of it. You are part of it. The Spirit of God will not be stopped. If the Spirit of God wasn't stopped by Jesus' death, if the Spirit of God wasn't stopped by Paul's persecutions, 
do you really think the Spirit of God is going to be stopped because you're a little uncomfortable sometimes? Be uncomfortable. Do what the Spirit tells you anyway. Amen. Please join me. We're going to pray for our congregation. We need to pray for our uh, group that is in Scotland right now. And also, uh, Kathy Buller is recovering from heart surgery. And uh, we also pray God's comfort on the family of Susan Cook uh, for the death of her dad, Gus Gustafson. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we know that your spirit is at work in us and in the world. We ask that you would heal those of us who are ill, that you would comfort those of us who are grieving. We ask that you would make us brave, that we would face down discomfort, that we would face down embarrassment, that we'd face down genuine fear in order to do the things you have set out for us, to do the good you have planned for us. Please use us for your glory and shape our characters for your pleasure. We ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. If you're able, you stand with me and sing, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. (laughs) 